0: All right, it is now time for us to jump right on into our Revelation series. Uh, Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture from Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to start by just reading these verses to you, and uh, then we're going to jump right in. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, this is what it says. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And Lord of Lords. All right, we're about to get into this a little bit. But first, Father, I pray that you give us revelation. Lord, there's been so much in this series that I have not been able to cover and every week I'm faced with my inadequacy as a communicator. But Father, today I pray that you would overshadow that inadequacy and grant clarity by the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant wisdom and understanding to every hearer and to every heart that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we said that this was a seven-part series and that this series was going to revolve around the seven visions of Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation. So Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation in seven very prominent visions. And what we said from the very beginning of this series is that every place in the book of Revelation where Jesus shows up, the church is always always, always with him. Jesus never shows up without the church and the church never shows up without Jesus. They are always together. And that means that a central facet of the book of Revelation, the central revelation of the book of Revelation, is Jesus and his church are always together. Jesus communicating to his church, I am with you. This is what he communicated to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just as he was ascending into heaven before their eyes. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you And then he ends with these words and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. That is the core message of Jesus to the church, which means that the book of Revelation is not primarily about the beast or the false prophet or the dragon or the antichrist or the seven bowls of wrath or the seven seals or the white throne judgment or the lake of fire. It's not about any of that. Primarily, the book of Revelation is about Jesus being with his church to the end of the age. Jesus walking with us. Jesus staying close to us. Jesus watching over us. Jesus Also, evaluating our works and Jesus speaking to us. And that's what we see in the seven letters. He is communicating to us his presence, that he never leaves us, that he never forsakes us, even to the end of the age. If you read the book of Revelation, that's what you're supposed to get. That's the message you're supposed to walk away with. And that is the confidence that's supposed to come from reading the book of Revelation. And this is also the the promise that's given us in the beginning. Blessed is he who reads and blessed are the ones who hear the words of this prophecy. Why are we blessed if we read and hear? We're blessed if we read and hear because what we are going to read and hear is the promise of Jesus that he's with us always, that he will never leave us and that he will never Forsake us. And so we see seven prominent visions of Jesus, and the church is always with him. In Revelation 1, Jesus appears as the Son of Man, and the church also appears as the seven golden lampstands. And so he's not just the Son of Man, but he's the Son of Man who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is with his church. And in Revelation 4, we saw Jesus appear as the slain lamb lamb in the middle of the throne. The lamb in the middle of the throne. And the church appears around him as the 24 elders gathered around the throne of God. And then in Revelation chapter 7, Jesus appears as the lamb seated upon the throne. And the church appears as a multitude arrayed in white. And then in Revelation chapter 4, we saw this in part 4. Jesus appears as the child born of the woman. And the church appears as the woman who gives birth to the child. And then in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, Jesus appears as the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and the church appears as the 144,000 who stand with him on Mount Zion. And then later in Revelation fourteen, fourteen through 16, uh, Jesus appears as the Son of Man seated on a white cloud, and the church is the harvest of righteousness gathered with his sickle. And now we are here in Revelation chapter 19 where Jesus appears as a rider upon a white horse and the church appears as the armies of heaven clothed in white linen, white and clean, who follow him wherever he goes. What a powerful, powerful passage of scripture we're looking at today. So John begins this passage by saying, uh, he starts by saying, I saw heaven opened there's this, this uh, what what John often says in his visions, I saw and behold, and he uses that pattern again. Now I saw and behold. Now when he says I saw, he's talking about what he sees, but when he says behold, he's inviting us to see what he sees. I saw means John had the revelation and behold means that we're invited to have the same revelation that John had and So Lord open our ears today and open our eyes that we might behold what John saw that we might see By the Spirit so revelations not just about what John saw. It's about what we are invited to see he says now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse so heaven opens and this is the fourth time heaven has opened in the book of Revelation and whenever John sees something that is open in heaven it's from God's perspective what God is doing in relationship to the earth the first thing John sees when heaven opens here is a white horse and that's interesting because the first thing he sees is not Jesus the first thing he sees is the vehicle of Jesus Heaven opens, and he sees a white horse, and only after he notices the white horse does he notice the rider of the white horse. And this is very significant for us. In the ancient world, there were two modes of transportation by which a king would enter into a city. If you looked up on the mountainside from your city, and you saw a king approaching you riding on a donkey surrounded by his army, If the king was riding on a donkey, you opened the gates and you welcomed him in because it meant that that king was coming to make peace with your city. But if you looked up on the side of the mountain and you saw a king surrounded by his armies and he was riding on a white horse, you locked up the gates of your city and you you called your army to war because it meant that that king was coming to make war on your city. Now, in the triumphal entry, Jesus, on Palm Sunday, a week before his crucifixion, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which means he comes to make peace. And the people of Jerusalem welcomed him, crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came on Palm Sunday riding on a donkey, and what did they do? They put him to death a week later. Now he comes riding on a white horse. In On Palm Sunday, he came to make peace. But in this vision, he's coming to make war. So when John sees the white horse, the first thing he knows is that whoever is riding on that white horse is coming to make war, not peace. And then John begins to describe the one riding. He says, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. Faithful and true and true. Jesus already identifies himself using these terms in in chapter 3 verse 14 in his letter to the Laodicean church which we're going to study this coming Wednesday night. He identifies himself to the church as the amen, the faithful and the true witness <clears throat> and the beginning of the creation of God. In Revelation the term faithful as it appears throughout the book of Revelation almost always refers to the the willingness to die for one's commitment to God. So you're faithful If you are willing to die for your commitment to God. Jesus is faithful because in the garden he said, Not my will, but your will be done. He's called faithful because he was willing to die for his commitment to God. And not only was he willing, but he went through with it all the way to the cross. Even though he could have saved himself, he did not. He was willing to lay down his life out of obedience to God. And this is why he's called faithful. And he's also called true which is awesome because it's the word Aletheia in the Greek. He's called faithful, and he's called Alethinos, which is a um, which is a, um, a form of the word Aletheia, which means true. This is actually where we got the word the name Aletheia from John fourteen six, where Jesus says, "I am the way, ha Aletheia, the truth, and the life." <clears throat> and so he is called faithful and true. And then it says, and in righteousness. He judges and makes war now. I did a I, I preached a sermon on This word di- dikaiosune and how uh, it doesn't just mean righteousness. It also means justice in righteousness and justice He judges and makes war in righteousness and justice He judges and makes war so there's two present tense verse two present tense verbs here the first is is judges and the second is makes war. He judges and he makes war. And these are present tense verbs. These are not future tense verbs, meaning he is going to judge and make war. These are not past tense verbs or perfect tense verbs, meaning he began to judge and make war and he's continuing to judge and make war, like it's a past completed action that results in a present continuing state. No, these are present tense verbs, meaning right now he's judging And making war. Meaning all the way back to the time when John received this vision, Jesus was already in the process of judging and makes war. And see, this is a fundamental truth of the book of Revelation is that things are not as they seem. If we look at the world, it seems like there's all kinds of injustice and unrighteousness that has been given uh, the, the right to persist in the world unchecked. But John says, no, no, no. If you could see heaven's version of what's happening on earth. Heaven's interpretation. He is judging and making war right now. He is judging and making war, but it says in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, remember I said, I believe in the first message of this series, that in the book of Revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ is a process, not an event. It begins in verse six with behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Behold, he is coming with clouds and that's present tense. He is coming now. He's already in the process of coming. He's been coming for 2000 years and he's going to continue to be coming until his com- his coming is complete. And so he's coming with clouds and already he's judging and making war, but he's making war in righteousness, he's judging and making war. So here the interpretation of human history that is given to John is made complete. In righteousness and in justice, he judges and makes war. Now, what does it mean? I mean, because it, it, we can't look outside and see Jesus judging and making war. Uh, and in a matter of fact, you know, the, the cry of our hearts is, come quickly, Lord Jesus, when we're able to see all of the unrighteousness and all of the injustices that are happening in our society and that are happening in our culture. The cry of our heart is, these things seem, seem unstoppable. These things seem untamable. Uh, and nobody wants to recognize, you know, people fight against when, when you talk about the un- injustices that are happening. People fight against it when you talk about the unrighteousness that's happening. Uh, but Jesus right now, John says, if we had the eyes of revelation, we would see that Jesus right now in righteousness and justice is ju- judging and making war. Now, first of all, whatever else it means, it means that his judgment and his warfare is right. It's in righteousness and it's just. It's in justice. That means that he's not judging and making war for political clout, for personal gain, for unjust means or ends. His warfare is righteous, and his judgment is righteous. Whatever he is fighting against, he does so from a place of righteousness and justice. But secondly, it means that his first act of righteousness is to judge. That is, he doesn't just make war, but first he judges. The the word judge is the word krino in the Greek, which means to distinguish one thing from another. First, he looks upon all that people think is just and judges whether it's actually just or not. He looks upon all that people think is righteous and judges whether it is actually righteous or not. When he judges, he exposes all of the lies that we have hid behind, all of the false pretenses that we have believed, and all of the loopholes that we have used to justify the unrighteousness and the injustices that we have committed both individually and corporately and so it means that he makes war against all unrighteousness and against all in justice. And this is so relevant to where we are as a nation right now in the United States of America because we are currently thrust within the crucible of a two-party system and one party tends to justify injustices in the name of fighting against unrighteousness and the other party tends to justify unrighteousness in the name of fighting against injustices. But he is coming to judge both the injustice of one party and the unrighteousness of the other. In the end, Jesus is represented by neither party. And I want to say this very clearly. Neither party is the righteous party. Neither party is the just party. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the just one. And he is the one who is making war. I think that's very important for us right now where we are facing this election to come. Because there's many out there that are trying to make this election about about accepting or rejecting heaven's righteousness. And I'm telling you, regardless of who you vote for, uh, it is not about heaven's righteousness. Okay, Keep that in mind as we go forth. In the end, he will destroy all that is unrighteousness. In the end, he will destroy all that is injustice. But not only in the end present tense, right now. He's doing it right now. He's judging and making war right now. And in the end of the age, when we look back, we'll be able to see how he was already judging and how he was already making war on unrighteousness and injustice in the earth. But his war is not with earthly kingdoms. He's not, you know, when it says he makes war, it doesn't mean he's making earthly wars. He did not make World War I. He did not make World War II. He did not make the Vietnam War. He did not make the Cold War. He did not make the Gulf War. He is making war on unrighteousness and on injustice. He is not making war on nation states and so we can't blame him for any of the wars that we've had to fight. We cannot say that any war that we have fought has been God's war. No, God's war is against unrighteousness righteousness and injustice and he will ultimately destroy all that is unrighteous and unjust in the earth and that's actually good news for us verse 12 his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This goes back to the inaugural vision in John chapter uh, Revelation chapter one, verse 14, when John described him, he says, "'I turned to see the voice that spoke, "'and when I turned, I saw one like a son of man.'" And, and then he begins to describe him. His head and hair were white as wool, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. He wore a, a robe down to his feet. His feet were like fine brass, a gold sash across his chest. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the power of that that searing imagery His eyes are like a flame of fire, which means that nothing is hidden from those eyes. He also introduces himself to the church of Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 18 as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Nothing is hidden from those eyes, which means that when we stand before him, we are ultimately without excuse. And then it says, on his head were many crowns. On his head were many crowns. There's two words for crown in the Greek. Uh, in the the Greek that's used in the New Testament. Uh, The first one has to do with a laurel wreath that's given to the victors in the arena, either in the Olympics or in the gladiators. The the ones who are victorious are given like a laurel wreath, that kind of crown that symbolizes victory. But then the second word for crown, crown, it has to do with more of a diadem, which signifies kingship over a kingdom or multiple kingdoms. And so on his head are many crowns. It's an unspecified number of crowns. And it reminds us of the dragon in chapter 12, verse 3. The dragon has seven heads with seven diadems on his head. And in chapter 13, verse 1, the beast from the sea has seven heads and 10 diadems on seven heads. Jesus has many crowns or many diadems, which means it's got to be more than seven because we know that that John can count to seven. And it's got to be more than 10 because we know that John can count to to 10 because he's already identified seven crowns and and 10 crowns. It's got to be more than that. Matter of fact, John can count a lot because in chapter 14, he saw the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the lamb. So he can count. This was a collection of crowns that was so vast that John could not count the number of them. It was just many crowns. It's a huge collection of crowns, of diadems, which means that he has been crowned king over many kingdoms, means he has claimed the authority of many kingdoms. And it signifies that all of the authority and all of the power of all of the kingdoms throughout all of world history, Jesus has claimed that for himself. It means That he has become, the kingdom of our, this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ as we heard in Revelation chapter 12. And so the image of Jesus with many crowns on one head, many, remember the difference between the dragon and the beast and Jesus is that the dragon and the beast have many crowns on many heads. Jesus has many crowns on one head. It, and and the, the dragon and the beast, their, their heads and their crowns represents many kingdoms. But Jesus' one head represents one kingdom that has subsumed All authority and all power, the right to rule over every kingdom now rests upon one head, which is really the fulfillment of what what, uh, the apostle Paul spoke of when he said, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meaning at the end of the age, every soul shall recognize the Lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Paul was actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah who cried out, God actually spoke through the prophet Isaiah, crying out, "Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am Yahweh, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn the world ha- by myself I have sworn, the word has gone forth from my mouth and shall not return, that before me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear an oath. And so he's got many crowns, many crowns, which is crazy because he's coming to make war, right? He's surrounded by the armies of heaven, and he's riding on a white horse which means he's coming to make war. And we're going to see what happens later is that the beast gathers all of his armies, the beast and the dragon, they gather all of their armies together to fight against the lamb and the armies of heaven. So this is, you're marching out to war. You know, we used to sing this song when I was growing up. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. But I don't think we understood what that song was about because we tend to think that we're in a culture war and. And that's not the war that Jesus is fighting. We tend to think we're in a political war. And that's not the war that Jesus is fighting. We tend to think we're in a war for the soul of our nation. Honestly, Jesus is not fighting for the war of a human nation, of a nation state. Jesus is fighting against all unrighteousness and all injustice in the earth. And if we are going to be Christian soldiers, we must fight with Jesus against all unrighteousness and all injustice in the earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the crazy thing, is that as Jesus marches, marches into the battle, he's already got all of the crowns on his head, which means he's already got all of the authority on his head, which means before the first arrow is shot, before the first sword is drawn, before the first battle cry is raised. Already, when Jesus approaches the battlefield, he's already got all the authority. It means the battle was won before the battle was even fought. And what we're going to see, if you go to the end of the book of uh, the ch- uh, the 19th chapter of Revelation, is that there is no battle. <laughs> you know, the beast and the and the and the dragon, they are array- They gather all of the armies of the earth to fight against the Lamb and the armies of heaven. And what happens? The, the Lamb comes. And the first thing he does is he snatches the beast and the dragon and he throws them into the lake of fire. And then the sword that proceeds from his mouth kills everybody else. There's no battle. It's a massacre. Right. And actually, I thought about calling this sermon a tale of two suppers, because what we find early in Revelation 19 is that we're being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we see happening in chapter 20 and chapter 21, the marriage supper of the lamb where the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And so those of us who believe are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. But then if you look at chapter 19, um, uh, where is it? Uh, Yeah, chapter 19, verse 17. Uh, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And so this really is the same vision that we saw uh, happening in chapter 14, the end of chapter 14 that Pastor Jeremy talked to us about so beautifully last Sunday, uh, that there were two harvests. There there was an angel with a sharp sickle and he was gathering up those for judgment and that Jesus had a sharp sickle and he was gathering up those for their reward. And so here's the two harvests. Now, the same vision, really, we're seeing it in a different sense. We're seeing Jesus and his army and Satan and his army. And what's happening is those who are on Satan's side are being gathered by the sickle of judgment. And those who stand with Jesus are being gathered with the sickle of harvest and righteousness. It's the same vision. It's the same truth that's being played out. But just we're seeing it from a different angle. But once again... I'm getting ahead of myself because we're only in verse 12. He, first he says in verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And then he says on his head were many crowns. And then he says he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He had a secret name. Now, first of all, let me say that there's actually uh, four names for Jesus in this passage. Okay, Jesus is actually named and identified four times here in Revelation chapter, 11, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. First in verse 11, he's called Faithful and True. Then in verse 12, we see that he has the secret name that no one knows but him. Then in verse 13, he's called the Word of God. And then in verse 16, he has a name written and the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now notice, two of these names are written. What's written is the secret name, number one, and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then he's called Faithful and True. And he's called the Word of God. So the distinction between the names that are written and the names that he is called, the names that are written are the names that God the Father writes for him. That is, God the Father determines his identity and says, this is who you are. And then who he is called, this is our response to the revelation of who he is. And so when when you get a revelation of who Jesus is, you begin to name him. You begin to call him. And and what did they call him? They called him faithful and true. They called him the Word of God. John said it in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's already called the eternal word of God. Now in Johannine theology, in John's theology, that that designation of Jesus as the word of God, we see in John chapter one, had a specific purpose. He's called the logos. The word logos in the Greek actually goes back to Greek philosophy, and the Stoic philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, for instance, in the fourth century B.C., they talked about uh, Zeno the Eleatic, who was the founder of Stoicism. He used the word logos to speak of this universal consciousness that is transcendent and that determines the destiny of every man or woman on the earth. And so, Zeno the Eleatic, he would say, you can't fight your destiny or your fate. That whole concept of fate. Fatalism comes from Zeno the Aleatic and Stoicism because it's determined by the Logos. And so the Logos is this deep philosophical idea that has to do with this transcendent reason or this transcendent consciousness that is eternal reason, basically. But for the Jewish people, Logos meant word right? It had to do with the word of God. It had to do with the Torah. It had to do with the law and the prophets, the word of God, the Tanakh. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. The earth grows old like a garment, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. And so when John says in the beginning was the logos, those who come from the Greek philosophical bent could hear that and go, yeah, that's right. And also the Jews could hear that and go, yeah, that's right. God's word was with him from the beginning. Right? God's wisdom. Right? And so John uses this word evangelistically to reach both Jews and Greeks and to speak of Jesus as the fulfillment of that which they had believed that transcended everything. He took the concept of that which they believed transcended everything and said, this is who Jesus is. He's the one who transcends everything. All right. So let's jump back in here. Okay, I hope that made sense. So he's he's called by, oh, but the secret name. I got to tell you about the secret name. So the thing about the secret name, here's, here's the crazy thing about um, the secret name. Yeah, okay. So the secret name that no one knows but him, it speaks of the mystery of God. It means that all that we know of God, of all that we know of God, there's more to know it means that god is not all revealing the scripture reveals everything we're supposed to know but it doesn't reveal everything god knows that is god knows of himself more than he has told us of himself now we know that even that which we do not know and that which we do not see is in it is definitely consistent with what we do know and what we do see but god is infinite and we are finite and we cannot ultimately know the totality of the mystery of God. So here's the key, knowing someone's name, and this was especially the case in the ancient world, knowing someone's name gives you a certain level of authority and influence in their life. I mean, think about it. If you know somebody and they got your back to you, uh, and you call their name, they're gonna turn around. Meaning, you have the power by calling their name to summon their attention. And there's a level of influence that you give to people when you tell them what your name is, right? And so, when Jesus has a name that no one knows except the Father, it means that there's, a, there's an aspect of his being and character that on, where only the Father has influence over him, where we can't even summon his attention. Only the Father can. And so, this also goes back to chapter two, verse 17, where Jesus says to the, to the one who overcomes, he says, to, who, to him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone and upon the stone a new name written that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a name that no one knows. Only you and me. And when Jesus says that, he means that I'm going to give you a name so that only I can call that name. It's a place in which only Jesus has the power to influence you and command your attention. Isn't that powerful? Like literally, Jesus is saying, I'm going to create a space between you and me that no one else knows about but you and me. Where only I can call your attention. Where only I can influence you in this place. Only I can command your allegiance in this place. All right. Moving on, verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, which is also interesting because the battle hasn't even begun yet. So why is his robe dipped in blood? Victors would emerge from the battlefield bathed in the blood of their enemies. That was the signal of victory, that you your your your, your robe was drenched in the blood of your enemies. But Jesus' robe is is soaked in blood, it's drenched in blood, and the battle hasn't even begun yet, right? Shouldn't he be soaked in the blood of his enemies? But no, his his garment is dipped in blood and it's actually not the blood of his enemies. Now, now I, I want us to see what this, this means. Um, there's actually a, a significance to this that goes back to John 13, when Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples and uh, celebrated the, the Lord's Supper, right? First, they had the Passover feast, and then when the Passover feast was over, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, and this is the blood of the new covenant. But in John 13, he begins to tell the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And this was so distressing because of the 12 disciples, you're like, I got a one in 12 chance of being the one. And so people are like, is it me? Is it, who is it? Right? And everybody wants to know. And so they sent a message to John, would you ask him who it is? And so John said, Lord, who is it? And the Lord says in verse 26, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Watch this. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. So he takes this piece of bread where he had just said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He dips it in wine where he had just said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the redemption of many. And then he gives it to Judas Iscariot. So the bo- the bread represented his body, the wine represented his blood, and giving the bread dipped in wine to Judas meant that he was handing himself over to Judas to be delivered to death. But now he rides on a white horse as one whose garment has been dipped in blood, meaning that his suffering is now past tense. And the same word dipped, it's the same word. Literally he's saying my robe was dipped in blood just as the bread was dipped in blood. Literally he means that he's already been through it. He means that he already walked through suffering and death. It means that there's no chance of this battle not turning out in his favor because he who died once and for all, he dies no more. He was the one who was dead and now he is alive and he said, I am alive forevermore. That's already at the beginning of of Revelation chapter one, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. And so his suffering is past tense. His death is past tense, but now his judging and making war is present tense. But also the imagery of his robe dipped in blood. You see there's seven visions of Jesus in the book of Revelation, but of those seven visions, he only appears in two forms. The first form is the heavenly son of man. And we talked about how that goes back to Daniel 7 where Daniel had his dream of the heavenly son of man riding on the clouds of heaven, enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. The angels of God worship him and he receives dominion and a kingdom and it's an everlasting dominion. And John is sick to his stomach after having that dream because he thinks he sees blasphemy. There's two thrones in heaven. How is there two thrones in heaven? How is this son of man being seated at the right hand of God? And then Jesus comes on the scene in his earthly ministry and says, by the way, I'm the son of man. That was his favorite self-designation. Every time he called himself the son of man, he was talking about Daniel chapter 7. He was talking about that son of man. And so throughout the book of Revelation, all starting in chapter 1, he appears as the heavenly son of man. What did John say in John chapter 1? When I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, I saw one like a son of man, which is the exact wording of Daniel chapter 7. Right? The second form that he takes in the book of Revelation is the slain lamb. That's Revelation 4, the lamb who was slain. Revelation 14, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. So he's either the son of man or he's the slain lamb. Now the image of him as the son of man speaks to his lordship. It speaks to his authority. It speaks to his dominion and it speaks to his power. But the image of him as the slain lamb speaks to his messiahship, speaks to his suffering. It speaks to his death. And it—and and when you put those images together, he is both Lord and Christ. The image of him as the Lamb is the image of him as the Lord, and the image of him as the Son is the image of him as— I'm sorry, the image of him as the Lamb is the image of him as— as the Messiah or the Christ, and the image of him as the Son of Man is the image of him as the Lord. He is both Lord and Christ. You see, you've got to receive him as both, Lord and Christ. You receive him as Christ when you believe in his atoning sacrifice for your sin, when you believe that he paid the price for your sin on the cross. You receive him as Lord when you submit your life to him and when you determine, I'm going to live a life in obedience to him and we're living in a day and age in which many want to receive him as Christ but not Lord. And here he is both Lord and Christ. But the image of him on a white horse is the image of him as Lord with many crowns on his head. That's his lordship. He's the son of man. But the image of him with his robe dipped in blood is the image of him as the Christ. He's also the slain lamb. The slain lamb is the Son of Man. And this vision here in chapter 19 puts it all together. All of the victory of his cross, all of the authority of his resurrection, all of the glory of his ascension to heaven, all of the the, the worship of the angels, all of the worship of the redeemed, all of the cries of the faithful, it is all now embodied in this rider on this white horse who is called Faithful and True. He is called the Word of God and he has names written, the secret name, And then the great name. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, meaning that this battle, he needs nothing from this battle. This battle does not extend his kingdom. This battle does not increase his authority. This battle doesn't give him anything that he doesn't already have. He enters into the battle as one who has already won the battle. He enters into the battle as one who is already victorious. This is the image that John wanted the church to get. Yes, we are in the armies of heaven. Yes, we are walking with the, with the son of man. Yes, we are following the rider on the white horse, but listen. Our future is not up in the air. It is not tentative. I'm telling you that if you flip all the way to the back of the book, we win. We win as long as we follow the lamb, we win. As long as we follow the son, we win. He's already crowned with all of the authority of earth and heaven. He's already victorious. He enters into the battle as one who is already victorious. And we are called by faith, to enter into the battle with him is those who are already victorious. I kept thinking yesterday, all, all day long, of this song that we used to sing in, in the Church of God in Christ. Don't wait till the battle is over. Shout now. <laughs> right? It said, don't wait till the battle is over. Shout now. Don't, don't, don't. You know in the end you're going to win. Don't, 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 don't wait till the battle is over. Come on, some of y'all remember that. Sing it with me. Don't wait till the battle is over. Shout now. Don't, don't, don't. You know in the end you're gonna win. Come on. Come on, somebody. I'm getting excited here, but I gotta calm down because I gotta finish this. All right. Listen. No, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bring it to a close. The battle ends... The beast and the dragon are thrown into the lake of fire. The rest of those who opposed him are put to death with the sword of his mouth. And the birds of the air come and feast on their flesh. And now we move into the great visions of Revelation chapter 20 and 21. And what happens, and really, when we get to chapter 21, verse 9 we see one more vision of the church. And this actually brings it to a close. Then one of the seven angels... Matter of fact, I'm going a, I'm to a start bringing this, into a, uh, bring this in for a landing right now. Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls with the seven last plagues came to me, came and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the Lamb's wife. Everything that we see leading up to this moment reveals to us the true identity of the church, the people of God. That ultimately, at the end of the book, we're not seven golden lampstands anymore. We're not 24 elders around the throne anymore. We're not 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. We're not a multitude arrayed in white. We're not a harvest Of righteousness and salvation. We're not a woman pregnant and greatly with child, persecuted by the dragon. We're not even an army on white horses following the lamb. But at the very end, when we come to the end of Revelation and God reveals to us our true identity, the angel says, come, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. And then we get to chapter 22. And he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Verse 3, There shall be no more curse. This is it. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. Verse 4, They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Verse five, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Everything that we read leads to this moment. The image of the people of God as the new city, the new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride for her husband what does it mean it means that the penultimate vision of revelation the penultimate revelation that we find in this prophecy is that god will dwell with us and be our god and we shall be his people it leads us to the promise of the dwelling of god Verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are faithful and true. I got to read just a couple more verses. Verse 6, 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my Son, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about us seeing Jesus more clearly than ever before, and it's also about us seeing ourselves more clearly than ever before. And as we see Jesus in all seven of these visions, we see him as the Son of Man, and we see him as the Lamb who was slain. We see him as the one who reigns by the power of his sacrifice. But as we see the church more clearly, we see that our being, that our destiny, that our modus operandi, that that our identity, who we are, Really, it all amounts to one thing, to be with the Lamb, to be with the Son of Man. We stand where He stands. We walk where He walks. We go where He goes. We do what He does. At the end of the age, we become His dwelling place. We become His dwelling place. This is our vision. This is our destiny, to become His dwelling place. But the most powerful aspect of all of it, the most powerful aspect, is that we don't have to wait to the end of the age to be his dwelling place. But we become his dwelling place even now. We experience him coming with clouds even now as we simply open up our hearts. Heaven is my... My throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you've built for me? That's what God cried out through the prophet Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you've built for me? He was not crying out for a temple made with hands. He's not crying out for a new building for a church. He's crying out for you to be the dwelling place of the Most High God. For you to be the place where he dwells. You see, in the here and now, what the book of Revelation is all about, God's desire to indwell His people. God's desire to walk in the midst of His people. God's desire to make His home in the human heart. There's something called the fullness of the Holy Spirit, also called the infilling of the Holy Spirit, also called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you know what it's about? It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about falling on the floor. It's not about manifestations. It's not about charismata. It's not about gifts of the spirit. It's about the indwelling of God. It's about God saying, I can't wait for the day when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven. I can't wait to turn you into my city where I set up my throne and I dwell with you forever. I want to come now and it's called infilling. And when our hearts begin to burn with that passion of God, we used to sing the song when I was in college. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you've built for me? Whom of you shall hear the cry of my heart? Where, where will my dwelling place be? That was the, the, the verse and then the chorus we respond. "Here, O oh Lord, have I desired for you to dwell. Here, O oh Lord, have I prepared for you a home. Long have I desired for you to dwell. Here, O oh Lord, have I prepared a resting place. Here, O oh Lord, I long for you alone. What, revel- what the revelation is supposed to release within our hearts is the cry, come, Lord Jesus, and make your home in me. Come, Lord Jesus. We spend too much time fearing the beast. We spend too much time fearing the Antichrist. We spend too much time fearing the mark and fearing the, the, the wrath and fear. It's not about, it's not what it's about. It's about Here, Lord, come and make your home in me. Come and make me your dwelling place. Cleanse me and wash me. Fill this vessel, O God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. This is the cry. Lord Jesus, I want to be. Listen, he created this physical body to be a temple. Know ye not, Paul says, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price and you are not your own. And over and over again when Jesus says throughout the book of Revelation, let him who has ears, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is, if you have ears to hear the desire of the Holy Spirit, that at this moment, I desire to make you my dwelling place. At this moment, I desire to come in and dwell. At this moment, I desire to inhabit you, to make my dwelling in you. You see, a lot of times we talk about salvation, and it's just about saying a prayer and, and confessing some faith and, and renouncing some sins and making a pledge. But it's actually about indwelling. Yes, all of those things, but why? Why does Jesus want us to repent of our sin so that we can get that out of the way so that nothing would hinder his indwelling? This is what it's all about. And this is the invitation of the Holy Spirit for each and every one of us today. And if you have ears to hear and a heart to believe, I encourage you right now, I urge you right now, I beg you right now to quiet your heart before the Lord. And to open up your hands with me and close your eyes as my wife comes and pray this prayer with me. Father, I ask you in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit to open my heart and to wash away all that offends you to cleanse me of all that would offend you. Remove anything that might hinder your indwelling. Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you. I hear you knocking at the door of my heart and I invite you, come in, make your home with me, eat with me and let me eat with you. Holy Spirit, I long for your fullness. Come on, say that, Holy Spirit. I long for your fullness. I long for your infilling. I long for your baptism. Fill me to overflowing. Dwell in me. Dwell with me. Make your home in me. Fill me to overflowing and dwell with me forever. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, you've just invited Jesus to come into your heart as Lord and Savior, I want you to just write into the chat right now, I prayed that prayer. This is only if you prayed that prayer for the first time or that you've been backslidden and you're renewing your walk with Jesus Christ right now. Drop it in the chat and listen, do me a big favor. A link is being dropped in the chat right now called I Prayed the Prayer. I want we want as a community to walk with you in this mm. journey as you walk with Christ. Because this is a beginning. This is the beginning of inviting the Holy Spirit to come. This is the beginning of, of fellowshipping with Jesus yes, with all yes. of your life. And you need a community around you to strengthen and encourage you as you live out that commu- that commitment. Mm. And we want to be that community mm. that walks with you as you walk with Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 That was powerful. Mm. That was powerful. And we just... Uh, continue to pray that the presence of Jesus will mm-hmm. just come over overpower, overshadow mm-hmm. our daily lives. Yes, yeah? that's right. Amen. Amen. So powerful. So powerful. Why don't we end yes. the service officially and then we could talk and pray for people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bless you with the blessings of heaven and earth. We bless you with the blessings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he go with you as we end this time together. God bless you.